0: Welcome to Nationwide Market Insights for February 8th, 2023. A focus on our nation's capital and the economy. With new leadership in the House and a narrowly divided Senate, what will the key priorities be for the 118th Congress? How much legislation should we expect from a divided government? What could the economic impact be from any actions we see from Washington? This is Brian Kirk. Our podcast normally focuses on what's happening in the economy and financial markets. In today's episode, we're going to expand our focus to include an update on our nation's capital and discuss the potential economic impacts from the changing dynamics and potential legislation. Joining us is Nationwide's Deputy Chief Economist, Brian Jordan, and Senior Director from Government Relations at Nationwide, Carson Lewis. Carson is part of our federal affairs team in Washington, D.C., and works on a variety of policy issues, including insurance, retirement security, data privacy, and tax. Carson, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Looking forward to the conversation. We're excited you're here, too. In fact, let's go to you for our first topic. Carson, what do you think will emerge as key priorities for Washington this year? And with Congress and the White House being somewhat divided, how likely do you think it is that any significant legislation is signed into law?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. You know, with the new power dynamics in Washington, things have changed quite a bit. I think we're getting into maybe what we can expect from priorities. It's important to step back and sort of understand some bigger dynamics about Congress, which is that. They do have things they have to get done, believe it or not. You know, we talk a lot about gridlock in Washington, but every year without fail, there are some things that must pass. right? And these must pass bills are something folks in D.C. focus on a lot because there are bipartisan priorities, some that are smaller than the big big stuff we've seen over the last couple of years. And in order for those to move and become law, they likely have to find a ride. And these must-pass bills are often the vehicles to do that. We saw that at the end of the year with the omnibus government funding bill that had a lot of other priorities on it. So for this Congress, there are a couple important must-pass bills. The first and biggest is the farm bill, which has to get reauthorized every five years. The Congress hopes to get the farm bill approved by the end of this year. There was a slight lapse last time, so um, it's not a sure thing, but very likely a farm bill will move towards the end of this year, early next year. And then the other Two big ones are the annual defense bill, the NDAA, and then government funding, um, which has to be passed by September 30th. Those sometimes can get kicked a little bit here and there, so those dates aren't you know hard and fast, but those three are the real sort of vehicles that a lot of people will be focusing on. And then the biggest one, which I think we'll talk about later, is the debt limit, which happen, will happen before all of those and kind of drive a lot of the, the politics and policymaking here in DC. Then getting into sort of the substance, so you alluded to the fact that with a divided Congress, there isn't likely to be those big legislative packages that we've seen over the last couple of years, first because of COVID, um, then the unified democratic control of Washington that allowed some big bills to move, the Inflation Reduction Act, the Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill, and so forth. So Congress will focus mostly on messaging and oversight efforts. So Even though there isn't going to be a lot of legislative product necessarily on some of these topics, there is going to be a lot of activity. And those topics, I think, include at a high level China, ESG, focus on big tech, the role of government, especially for Republicans, and the regulatory agenda of the Biden administration, which has been very prolific in the first two years. And I think we expect that to continue. And then for Democrats, a big priority for them is going to be housing. And it's important to note, although some of these topics will be contentious, ESG, for example, obviously, federal regulation, there is some areas of bipartisanship on a lot of this. China, for example, big tech, both sides of the aisle have concerns or interest in addressing it. The problem is where the rubber meets the road, right? What are you actually going to do? Often the parties come out on different sides. So... There may not be a whole lot of legislative activity, but there could be some
0: areas where they work together, at least in small areas, to sort of advance the ball. Uh, Thanks, Carson. Brian, let me bring you in this conversation, too. It's often said that a split government is good for the financial markets, but has that historically been true? And how have stocks and bonds previously performed under either a split government or a one-party rule government?
2: It is true. It's a good point. It is true that markets like, or at least profess to like, investors profess to like split government. We often see markets do well after election results that deliver split government. Historically, however, the track record is mixed. The stock market tends to do better during single-party rule. The bond market tends to do better under split government and this makes sense um, given the fact that government spending tends to be stronger, quite a bit stronger in real terms under single party rule than it is under split government. So historically, real government spending has risen by an annual average of 4.2% when we have single party rule, the same party controlling the White House, the Senate and the House of Representatives. But it's only gone up by an average of 1.6% spending, government spending, up by an average of 1.6% when we have a split within the parties or between the parties in government. And so the the stock market likes that. It likes more spending because it likes more economic growth. More economic growth means better earnings growth. And so the S&P 500 has gone up by 9.1% on average per year when we have single-party rule, just 7.5%. we have split government the bond market in contrast would rather see more focus on debt reduction the bond market of course worries about the potential long-term potential of a rising debt burden and so we've seen bond prices go up by an average of just two percent per year during single party rule and nine point two percent per year during periods of split government. So the track record is really mixed. The stock market likes single party rule, the bond market likes split government.
0: Thanks, Brian. So Carson, more recently, the markets have been especially sensitive to movements and inflation. Do you sense that lawmakers share these concerns and are as a result more likely to favor fiscal restraint going forward? Absolutely.
1: I mean, you saw it starting, I think, sometime last year with the rising gas prices and heading into the midterms, right? There was a real focus on the political messaging side around inflation Um, and that has really taken hold. Um, So I'll defer to Brian on the economics of it all, but even as some of that has waned, the focus on the economy, And the impact of inflation on regular Americans and voters has continued to be a top priority. I think there was just a a Pew poll out yesterday on what voters think the priorities for Congress and the White House should be this year. And sort of not surprisingly, Republicans listed the economy and the deficit as one and two. Democrats had healthcare costs ahead of that, so sort of tied in, but then listed the economy, number two, tied with Medicare solvency. So it's without a doubt a top priority and focus of both the administration and Congress. What actually happens about that is a little less clear, right, it's easy, especially when you're in the minority to talk about um, fiscal restraint when the other, you know, the majority party is passing spending bills. But once you have the pen, and I'm not doubting the sincerity of the, you know, interest in reducing the debt and deficit of the federal government, but reigning in government spending is a lot harder to do in practice. One person's government waste may be another person's priority. So once you get into the real specific details of this, it becomes a lot harder. And bigger picture, there's just a sort of broken appropriations process, I think, in Congress, right? You've seen this play out the last couple of cycles where Government funding expires September 30th. Congress usually passes, what's called a short-term continuing resolution to kick the can down the road, so to speak, and set that deadline a little later in the year. And then ultimately Congress passes a sort of a big omnibus spending bill at the end of the year. So while there are appropriation discussions going on throughout Congress and throughout the year, it really gets jammed at the end and some tough decisions have to be made without these sort of bigger picture, what are we doing long-term really factoring in.
0: Yeah, thanks, Carson. Switching back to the economy now, Brian, how might the Fed respond to the potential fiscal policy initiatives?
2: So it's interesting, as we record this, or just before we recorded this, uh, Jerome Powell, the Fed chair, was giving a speech in Washington, D.C., where he made a very rare fiscal policy comment. Typically, the Fed steers away from making comments on fiscal policy and sticks to its bread and butter, which is monetary policy, of course. But Jerome Powell said in Washington today, the federal debt is on an unsustainable path and it needs to be dealt with sooner rather than later. Part of the reason that Powell is saying this or may be saying this is because the Fed believes that some of the rise in inflation over the past couple of years has been due to fiscal stimulus. There was a San Francisco Fed uh, paper that came out last year that suggested that of the 7% inflation rate in 2021, three percentage points of that was due to fiscal stimulus. So the Fed would certainly like to see a little bit more fiscal restraint to help it in its fight against inflation. And if it were to be true that fiscal stimulus were to become more accommodative again in the future, uh, the Fed would, would likely respond with more restraint on the monetary side, given the increased focus recently on inflation.
0: Yeah, thanks, Brian. Let's switch from one hot topic to another hot topic, and that is the debt ceiling. Carson, where do Congress and the White House stand on this issue?
1: Yeah, increasing the debt limit is sort of the only topic, really, of focus here in DC at the moment. And that's because a lot of other issues sort of stem from it, um, I think. We're looking at a at a X date, so to speak, when the government will actually hit that limit, sometime late Q2, early Q3. And there's right now, it's a, it's a lot of posturing, right? People positioning themselves for those ultimate negotiations. The White House has been very clear since last year that They are not interested in negotiating on the debt limit. They want a clean increase in the debt limit. Republicans, um, as we mentioned at the top, now in control of the House, have been very clear that they are not interested in a clean debt limit increase, and they want some additional sort of spending policy to rein in government spending, the debt and deficit, to ride along with that increase. But how exactly that plays out, right, that's the million-dollar question, because although both sides have, you know, I just mentioned the White House doesn't want to negotiate, but they very likely will. I think most of those decisions to increase the debt limit are usually coincide with some other policies, right, around government spending. And ultimately, it has to pass the House. The big wild card, I think, right now for at least the time being is the Senate. Senate leaders have kind of remained a little mum, especially on the Republican side. Senate Democrats, I think, are obviously aligned with the White House. So, the real question is what can be done to sort of get Republicans to agree to increase the debt limit? Republicans have been clear, I should say, that they have acknowledged that we will not default. We will increase the debt limit, right? So, on the surface, right, the White House wants to increase the debt limit. Republicans say there isn't going to be a default, which means you have to increase the debt limit that kind of is an obvious path forward. But again, Republicans want something to go along with that. Right now, it's not clear. I think Republicans are still getting their priorities in order, understanding where their caucus is. You mentioned the thin majority in the Senate. There is a razor thin majority in the House as well. So Speaker Kevin McCarthy has to navigate his inter-party dynamics to see where they can agree and what can go along with that. You know, The ideas that are often thrown out are some sort of budget caps. We had that, remember, last time in 2011, maybe something like the Trust Act, which would create panels to review Medicare solvency and social security, basically uh, hunt, so to speak, that decision and let other people sort of come up with solutions to these bigger spending problems. And there's a whole plethora of other ideas out there, but the Republican caucus has not unified around what exactly those sort of red lines are. And Kevin McCarthy has been keeping a pretty open tone about where those negotiations can go. So as we get closer, things will certainly get a little more contentious. And I think things to flag about these dynamics, right, the last time we had this real debt limit fight in 2011, the downgrade didn't come because of default. It happened because of the sort of outlook prior to default. So even if we ultimately raise the debt limit, if we push it too close to that, final date, there could be implications. And then the other thing is, there's all these other sort of alternative ideas to raising the debt limit, right? If we can't do that, how about these other sort of novel solutions, right? Mint the coin, prioritizing debt payments. I think at the moment, those are just really ideas that don't have the necessary political seriousness to actually be implemented. So I think the focus really is on, we are going to need to increase the debt limit, and sort of what has to be paired with that will be the deciding factor. Now, one sort of wrinkle to this, right, I mentioned government spending, which has to happen September 30th. There is also the possibility that we get some sort of short-term agreement to punt the debt limit a little later in the year, pair it up with government funding so that we can have a more holistic debate that could be sort of problematic and difficult in itself, but. Those are the two sort of inflection points that will happen around sort of government spending, or first the debt limit, and then um, government funding a little later in the year.
0: Well, let's transition back to how the economy reacts to this then. Uh, Brian, how have the financial markets behaved during prior debt ceiling crises?
2: So there is a bit of a boy who cried woof aspect to the market's response at least in the in the few debt ceiling crises we've had over the last dozen years there was some impact some clear impact in in 2011 as carson mentioned the s p 500 nearly went into a bear market in 2011 during the debt ceiling crisis now it wasn't all just the debt ceiling crisis again as as carson mentioned we had a downgrade by s p of the u.s sovereign credit rating we were also going through a european debt crisis at that time. But clearly, the the debt ceiling issue played a role. And uh, we did have some ripples in the bond market as well. Long-term treasury yields rose by about 30 basis points as we were getting close to the deadline in the summer of 2011. But then in 2013, very little impact whatsoever. Um, A few small uh, waivers in in both the bond and the stock markets. But it was a great year for the S&P 500, a great year for stocks In general, during the debt ceiling debate in 2013, uh, the S&P was up by almost 30% that year. Very few um, minor pullbacks during the year. We did see a sell-off in bonds that year, but I don't think we can attribute that the debt ceiling debate because that was also the era of the taper tantrum the federal reserve was exiting its quantitative easing program that had been in place in in one form or another going back to the to the financial crisis in in 2008 and the market was responding to that likely very little response to the debt ceiling and so far this year We really haven't seen it's very early in the year. There's a long way to go, but uh, the market to this point has done well. The markets have done relatively well so far in in 2023. Not much of an impact yet from the debt ceiling debate.
0: Thanks, Brian. That's going to be a great place to wrap it up for today. Carson, Brian, thank you so much for updating our audience on everything that's happening in Washington, D.C. right now and potential economic impacts from all that join us next time as we discuss the upcoming CPI report. So we'll look at inflation and we're also going to look at corporate earnings. It should be very interesting. Make sure you subscribe to receive notifications when each new episode is released. Until next time, for Nationwide Market Insights, this is Brian Kirk. The information provided by Nationwide Economics is general in nature and not intended as investment or economic advice, or A recommendation to buy or sell any security or adopt any investment strategy. Additionally, it does not take into account any specific investment objectives, tax, or financial condition, or particular needs of any specific person. The economic and market forecasts reflect our opinion as of the date of this report and are subject to change without notice. These forecasts show a broad range of possible outcomes. Because they are subject to high levels of uncertainty, they will not reflect actual performance. We obtain certain information from sources deemed reliable, but we do not guarantee its accuracy, completeness, or fairness. Nationwide and the Nationwide N and Eagle are service marks of the Nationwide Mutual Insurance Company. Copyright 2023, Nationwide.